This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The sign outside read Kendrick Castillo, a hero for heroes. It was held up by three robots, a nod to the 18-year-old's love of robotics and engineering. Hundreds packed Cherry Hills Community Church Wednesday to honor Castillo, who died last week trying to thwart an attack on STEM School Highlands Ranch. We're going to start the show with some excerpts of the service. His elementary and middle school principal, Charlene Mollis, like so many, remembered Castillo's kindness. I have always believed that one person can make a difference. Whether it was volunteering with his dad for the Knights of Columbus, ushering at Mass, or helping his classmates and teachers, Kendry Castillo was certainly proof that one person can make a difference. On Kendrick's first day of preschool, we witnessed what a loving child he was. When Kendrick walked into the classroom, he saw a classmate crying across the room. The little boy was missing his mom. Kendrick walked right over to the child, put his arm around him, and told him it was going to be okay. Mrs. Gates was Kendrick's sixth grade teacher, and she remembers Kendrick's ability to figure out anything computer-related. He was her go-to technology guy, and by sixth grade, Kendrick was helping most of our teachers with computer issues. Kendrick just seemed to be happiest when he was serving others, but he did this humbly, working in the background, making sure everything was done well, whether it was producing the annual all-school talent show, making and serving pancakes with the Knights of Columbus, DJing the junior high dances, leading the computer club, or serving on the student council. He was the first to arrive at the last to leave at all-school and church-related functions. Kendrick was an inspiration to everyone lucky enough to know him, and I even know is still inspiring us through his acts of selfless courage. Kendrick Castillo's father, John, said he and his wife have felt the love of thousands as they grieve. And if I had to describe him a certain way, first it would be love, the love for anybody that he met. And I mean anybody, people, he was compassionate. You know, if if you're walking down the street or something and you stumbled, he'd walk over to make sure you were okay. We all have the ability to be a little bit like Kendrick. It's all inside of us. You just have to be willing to know how far you want to take that. And there's risk in love. There's risk in being hurt. There's risk in rejection. Kendrick knew all of these things. And he never wavered from any of it. But what was extraordinary to me... In our lives, physical things, we can't take with us when we pass. And Kendrick knew this far before anyone else. He knows that the bond and relationship, when we would go elk hunting, it was never about getting elk or deer. It was never about that. It was about the adventure. He figured that out early. And he never lost that. He never lost his innocence. We all really, really love Kendrick. But... To carry on his life's message, we need to be more like him. That's what this world needs for change. Governor Jared Polis declared Wednesday Kendrick Castillo Day in Colorado, tweeting, Rest in peace, Kendrick. Your bravery won't be forgotten. (music) 
The district attorney in the STEM shooting case says he'll charge the 16-year-old suspect as an adult. That likely means a harsher sentence if convicted. But the death penalty is off the table because the U.S. Supreme Court says it can't be used for people under 18. So what about the older suspect who's 18? The DA hasn't decided. We want to shed light on how the U.S. justice system views young adults who commit serious crimes. Law professor John Bloom has studied this and how it's changing. He's at Cornell. And, Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's start with the charges against the 16-year-old. As we said, the DA, George Brockler, said he'll charge the teen as an adult. States vary in how they sentence this group, uh, but in the last few decades, the U.S. Supreme Court has limited punishments for juveniles, even when they're charged as adults. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Um, The Supreme Court first said that people under the age of 18 could not be sentenced to death. Uh, Then they said that juveniles could not be sentenced to life without parole for a non-homicide. And then most recently, they said that a juvenile... Uh, even for a homicide, can't receive a mandatory life without parole sentence. Do you expect that kind of constriction to continue? Um, it's difficult to say. The composition of the court, uh, Supreme Court has changed, so it's difficult to predict how they would uh, continue to rule if confronted with various permutations of this. But I think it is very much established that children are different for sentencing purposes than adult offenders. And it's often brain science that they point to in making this argument. Help us understand what we know now about brain development and culpability. Yes, well, so you're, you're right. Uh, many of these decisions were driven by the Supreme Court's uh, recognition that neuroscience has shown that the brains of uh, teenagers and young adults is not fully formed, and it's not fully formed in areas that directly impact culpability, their ability to foresee the consequences of actions, their ability to regulate behavior, impulsivity, that all of these things, uh, the brain is just really not fully formed, and so they shouldn't be held uh, to liable to the same extent as adults. We had a listener question, Professor. It comes from Marshall Schechter of Denver, and he asks, I'd like to understand why prosecutors are able to charge 16-year-olds as adults. Will you help us understand that? Um, Yes, well, the Supreme Court has ruled that under some circumstances a juvenile uh, offender can be transferred or waived up to what they frequently call adult court. Uh, that there has to be, and the law varies in some places, it's mandatory for certain offenses. In others, the prosecutor has to go through the motion of requesting that the person be uh, transferred. Uh, up. But the, the idea is that for some uh, offenses, juveniles should be uh, sentenced as the same as adults. So, well, they can't really be sentenced the same as adults, but they should be at least have to go through the normal criminal justice system. And is that basically true across the states, that states enact that? Yes, it depends. The age varies from some states as to when you can wave someone up. Uh, But generally, in most states, it's 16. Some people under some circumstances can be uh, tried as adults. Okay. Uh, The 18-year-old suspect in the STEM shooting faces 48 criminal charges, including first-degree murder. Uh, The DA, as I uh, hinted at, says he hasn't yet looked into the possibility of the death penalty. Under the law, an 18-year-old could be subject to capital punishment, but you recently wrote an article about evolving attitudes when it comes to 18 to 21-year-olds, that, that sort of group. Help us understand this. 
Okay, well, so, uh, yes, what I uh, did was I looked at all the death sentences that have been imposed since the Supreme Court said you can't sentence uh, people under the age of 18 to death. Mm. So I looked at all the homicides. I looked at all the death sentences. Uh, and uh, so what the study revealed was that a, a very small and continuing shrinking percentage of death sentences are imposed on offenders between the ages of 18 to 21. What do you think is the reason for that? Is it that prosecutors are more reluctant to charge, or is it about when it gets to the jury? I think it's a combination. Uh, I think there's some recognition that uh, the the same neuroscience which says uh, that you know an 18 year old's brain is not fully formed uh, leads you to believe that well someone in the 18 to 21 age group is still, you know, not, uh, while they may be more mature than a 17-year-old, they're certainly not uh, as mature as an adult, but their brain is still developing as well. So I think that has led to the recognition that this group, that you should proceed with caution in deciding whether to seek the ultimate punishment. Uh, And I think juries have become increasingly more reluctant to impose the death penalty, uh, well, on people generally, but especially on this group of, uh, you know, still not technically juveniles, but still quite very young people. But hasn't the issuance of the death penalty and executions, haven't they been going down overall? In other words, that would be true then for the 18 to 21-year-olds. But are you saying that there's something exceptional about them? Uh, Well, it is true. You're right. I mean, the trend line nationally is down. Uh, so uh, that you know, there are fewer death sentences imposed, there are fewer executions. Uh, but what I was looking at was the percentage of death sentences that are imposed. So the number, the, the people that are 18 to 21, the death sentences have been imposed in the last 15 years is about 10% or a little less. In the decades before that, the percentage of people sentenced to death in the 18 to 21-year-old group was more, about 25%. Now, so there's is- been... Yeah, this is fascinating. We should say that the three men in Colorado's death row were all in the 18 to 21 year old age group when they committed their crimes. Um, I I wonder if you can think of a recent case where someone in this age range uh, could have been charged, convicted, sentenced to death, but was not. Uh, Well, there are a number, uh, you know, of them. I can think of uh, one that I'm aware of where an individual killed his father and then killed another inmate in the jail pre-trial, and he was 19 years old. Uh, And then in that case, he was not sentenced to death. He was went to trial as a capital case, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Is it frequent? I I don't know if when science sort of changes how courts act, how the justice system works. Can you think of other instances like this? We've seen a little bit of it in other types of, uh, you know, forensic science. There's been some uh, changes in the law of governing eyewitness identification based to sort of the increased social sciences recognition that, um, you know, that people aren't very good at that. So trying to increase procedures. Uh, So, uh, you know, sometimes the law is motivated and it and reacts in re- relationship to science, to, to science, and sometimes it doesn't. We've seen it with things like arson and other sort of forensic sciences, the realization that they're not uh, as effective as we thought they were previously. So sometimes the law follows science and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and this leads to the question then of brain development. I mean, if if the frontal lobe, as some say, isn't fully developed until the mid-20s, it, it's awfully hard to draw 
a, a line. You know, when someone has the mind of an adult and and when someone doesn't, especially in the case of brutal crimes. Uh, it can be. I do think the 21-year-old line makes some sense. And when you're thinking about drawing any line, uh, the thing I think often to think about is, well, uh, you know, where, which side are you going to err on? Uh, or is the line sort of reasonably appropriate? And so we know that most people that are in the 18 to 21 year old group, their brains really are not fully formed. They're still developing. They're still subject to many of the same things that someone under 18 is. Uh, but we also know that in the twenties, uh, you know, that starts to change. So, uh, you know, if you're going to have a death penalty, you want to make sure that you're sentencing the worst of the worst. Then I think it does make sense to draw the line, uh, at 21. The law is not there yet, but, uh, hopefully it will be. We'll see uh, if this evolution continues. Professor, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Professor John Bloom of the Cornell Law School. He's a death penalty expert and recently wrote about changing standards when it comes to young adults. The Episcopal Church in Colorado has around 30,000 followers. That's the size of Wheat Ridge or Englewood. And the church here is about to get a new bishop. Kim Lucas will be consecrated Saturday, the first woman in that position and the first African-American. In a press release, this was described as shattering the stained glass ceiling. And Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm curious what you prayed for as a kid and how that differs from what you pray for now? Oh, my goodness. Um, as a kid, I grew up in a family that was um, nominally religious, more superstitious than religious. So we prayed for, you know, the tornadoes not to hit us. We grew up in eastern North Carolina. We prayed for things like that. Um, but I didn't really have um, an understanding of, of a prayer life until I went to college and uh, happened to meet an Episcopal chaplain who coaxed me back into church and uh, helped me develop a, a more personal idea of prayer. I always say I used to go to church and say prayers, but praying was something that I had to learn later. Interesting. I, I want to tease that apart a little bit. It seems very reasonable to pray not to be hit by a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. Yeah. Uh, but how does that kind of prayer uh, differ from the prayer you practice today? Well, I think uh, for me, prayer has become an evolving conversation with that power that is greater than me and that power that gives me life. And so it involves a lot more listening. And as I have learned to pray, I have learned that the words of C.S. Lewis are true, that prayer changes you, not God. And so and in that mode, um, prayer has become a way for me to be more centered, to find peace in the midst of chaos, um, and to seek that which is around me, the, the, the words and the answers are there. And prayer opens me to seeing them more clearly. I'm fascinated by what you mean by answers. Of course, there's the literal version of that, right? You hear a voice that says, do this. Uh, and then I suppose that there is a very different way of receiving an answer in, in your gut, in, in your sense of something. How, how do answers come to you? Answers come to me um, in relationships, uh, people around me are, I have learned, have become answers to my prayers. Answers come to me in clarity, uh, clarity of vision, clarity of understanding. Answers usually come to me in the form of peace. 
Um, and it's a piece that you can't explain and there's no real reason for it, but it is just this deep centered piece uh, in myself. So that's how I, I receive those answers. Thanks for uh, opening up your prayer life a little there. <laughs> I appreciate that. So I mentioned that you're the first woman and the first African-American uh, who will serve as bishop of the Episcopal Church in Colorado. You spoke about these firsts in your final sermon at St. Margaret's in Washington, D.C., where you've served for the last seven years. Uh, and it sounds like that church, maybe way back, was pretty segregated. You had come to that place where in your history you had to stop telling people with brown faces that their church was over at 15th and P. Because you listened to Jesus and in that discomfort the people of this church realized that that was not acknowledging the full humanity of every human being that walked to that door. Listening to Jesus called this church to make a lot of radical stances about women inviting them onto the vestry in 1940 when it was unheard of. In a world that still questions the authority of women, in a world that still devalues the gifts and talents of women and pays women less for the same work, in a world that continually says women are less than, you have stood up and said no. What does it mean to you to be both the first woman and first African-American Episcopal Bishop of Colorado? For me, it's a deep honor and privilege. Um, I did not seek uh, the episcopacy. It was not really on my radar. And what happened was I was in a room with women discerning how we encourage women into leadership. And the convener of the group said, I've just gotten the Episcopal profile for the Diocese of Colorado. I want to read it to you. And she started reading parts of it. And she got to the part where it said, the bishop we seek. And she read the qualities. And she looked around the room and she said, does this sound like anybody we know? And everybody looked at me. And so for me, um, allowing my name to go forward in the process was me trying to be faithful, trying to listen to the Spirit and to follow where the Spirit led. What was Colorado looking for that you thought you were a good fit for? They were looking for a leader to walk alongside them, to remind them of what it means to be a community of Christ. The Episcopal Church in Colorado has had a lot of division, and they have weathered that division, and they've come to a place where they've decided that they don't have to be like-minded if they're like-hearted. Divisions and over what? Divisions over human sexuality, primarily, um, over uh, the ordination of LGBTQI uh, clergy, uh, same-sex marriage, those kinds of things. What does it mean not to have the same mind but to have the same heart? Well, for me, it means that we can disagree on things, but as long as our hearts are fixed on the message of the gospel, and that's the message of Jesus. That's the message of love and the message of reconciliation and the message of relationship. As long as our hearts are centered around how we make this world better and more livable, we might disagree on particular things, but there are so many things about which we can agree and work um, together. You reflected on this uh, when you were at St. Margaret's in your final sermon. We still need to witness that love is love. That love is manifested in such a way that when two people find each other and they can manifest that love for one another and share themselves with one another in such a way that the gospel can be seen and heard and lived in their lives, that it doesn't matter if they're of the same sex or the same gender, the fruits 
are real. But so are the differences. I mean, the di- and the differences are existential for both sides. They are. They really are. And at the same time, um, I think church can be a community where we can sit together. One of the great things about St. Margaret's is that it has traveled that journey. And I said to people when I interviewed here, in my congregation, I had members from every political um Strike. Administration, administration ah. back to Ford. Right, this is in D.C. <laughs> this is in D.C. I had every administration back to Gerald Ford represented and members of my congregation who um, disagreed, who voted differently, but they came together and they fed the homeless and they reached out to the community and they did good work with one another and learned to love one another. And uh, to me, that's what the gospel is about. What are your goals for the Episcopal Church in Colorado? Is it that you want to grow the flock? Do you want to diversify the flock? Are you happy with the flock as is? Yes, to all of that. And and, um, I think the Episcopal Church in Colorado has the potential for an amazing witness. Colorado is a state that is growing rapidly. Um, It is a state that has so much potential and so many young people coming. And I think the Episcopal Church in Colorado has real gifts to share, um, real gifts of welcome, real gifts of authenticity, real gifts of this good news that I think the world needs so desperately right now. Do young people need that especially? You talked about the young people. And I think of young people generally in surveys as being less attached to church. Yes, yes. And I think part of the reason is that church became something that you had to attach to or not attach to. And uh, I love the work uh, that Bishop Michael Curry, my presiding bishop, is bringing, talking about how um, it is time for us to go out into the world and to to share what we have, to walk with people um, on their journeys and to share um, the way of Jesus. I mean, I think it's a beautiful and powerful way. And I think walking with people in that way is, is important. And I think the Episcopal Church in Colorado is uniquely equipped to do that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Kim Lucas is Bishop-elect of the Episcopal Church in Colorado. She'll be consecrated Saturday. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with why the Congressional Black Caucus thinks Denver's the place to find future leaders. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees. There's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The next political star could get their start this weekend in Denver. The Congressional Black Caucus Institute holds trainings this weekend, hoping to discover and groom future leaders. Vanessa Gradine-Jones is executive director of the CBC Institute, and welcome to our program. Thank you, Ryan. So the other cities where you're doing these trainings are New Orleans. Black population there, 60 percent. Atlanta. 54%. 54%. LA, 10%. Denver, 4 Why come here? Well, uh, 
we're looking for areas that don't have uh, highly populated African-Americans because we think it will be viable for the small population you do have to get the experience. Um, part of the other reason is that the Walton Family Foundation, who um, provided the grant for this particular uh, training, um, has a program office here in Denver. And okay, so that helps. It's, you know, it's critical <laughs> for them. It's like, make sure one of your trainings is in Denver. And then we had these touch point meetings that we had for each of the cities that we went to. And so we had a very good turnout when we came to Denver. Everyone here seemed pretty excited about it, largely because there's a small African-American population. And so to have the Congressional Black Caucus Institute here and interested in providing that training was just very helpful and useful to them. I, I, of course, think of the fact that Colorado elected its first black member of Congress. Yes, in this, we're excited uh, about uh, Representative Nagoose. Yes, indeed, Joe Nagoose from Boulder. Do you think that that will energize people? Is that an important step? I, I think it did energize them a bit. Um, but you know, Denver's had two black mayors, and so you know, I, I think that has been energizing for you all to let you know that there is an area that there is a place for African Americans in politics in Denver. Um, so I don't know that his particular election stimulated anything. I just think, you know, just the possibilities that exist. When you set up these boot camps, what did you find people with leadership potential needed to actually make the leap and to get into politics? The, uh, the courage to know that they mattered and that their votes mattered and that their participation mattered. That's the hardest part. Um, most people feel like, you know, politics is the area that's just for the elite and that has been in it or have generational um, representation for, uh, in the area. And this is not true. You know, well, it's partially true. You know, things have changed so much in politics and what we thought was standard and true that you're open to all kinds of possibilities now. And so I think that also helps. Um, and hurts at the same time um, because you you have people that aren't really qualified to be in these offices. So our training helps that. We make sure that you've got full training to do everything from door knocking to candidate. Yeah, door knocking to candidate because, mm-hmm. you know, running for office is just one way to get involved. Right. Campaigns need operatives, mm-hmm. field workers, communication staff. And you argue, I understand, that white candidates need to hire more diverse staffs. Uh, tell me why. And, and is there a good pipeline for those kinds of operatives? I think uh, the black vote matters, um, and I think it has been carrying a lot of candidates in the past. Um, and we saw that with uh, the the Senate race in Alabama. Um, it was blacks and women that carried that vote um, for Jones. Um, so I, I think that if we provide training and we you know let people know that you can get involved and to show them again that their vote matters, I, I think African Americans get marginalized in an area where. Your vote only matters when it's time for the actual vote, but your actual participation isn't needed um, in the mindsets of the candidates. And and I think then African-Americans start to feel the same way. They feel like they've been taken for granted. Um, and so there are lots of highly trained operatives out there ready to work on campaigns and to help candidates of all races, not necessarily just white. But, you know, we have the same issue with African-American candidates because they've gotten so used to seeing just white, majority white um, operatives that that's who they gravitate toward. Clearly, these are the only people that know how to run a campaign. Oh, that's so interesting. It's yeah. not just a, a function of right. white campaigns. Right. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's nice to say your vote matters, but if you encounter someone who fundamentally doesn't believe that's true, I, I I'm interested in the conversation you have with them to change their mind. Funny you say that, Ryan. Um, so one of our touch what meetings was just held uh, maybe a month ago in Atlanta, and I was at the airport 
and the Uber driver picked me up and we're leaving the airport. And so I asked him, how do you feel about your mayor? And he's because I saw the sign where she says, welcome to welcome to Atlanta. Welcome to Atlanta. Uh And he says, who are you talking about? I said, the black woman on the sign we just passed. He's like, our mayor's black. Your mayor's been black for decades. What are you saying to me? And he said, what do you do for a living? So I started to tell him. He was like, well, you're going to give me a hard time because although I'm college educated, I've never voted. I'm 24 and I've never voted in an election. And I said, I don't understand how that's even possible. And he said, because it has nothing to do with me. When I'm older and I have children, then perhaps I'll, you know, get interested and involved. And I said, but everything from the day you're born to the day you die. It's part of a government function. And so if you're electing bad politicians and they're, and, you know, creating bad policy, it's going to affect you for generations. It's like, so why would you continue that cycle that you have to try and correct once you actually have children? Mm. And he said, well, you know, I still don't see how it involves me. I said, well, you had to have a driver's license to be an Uber driver. That's a government function. I said, policies could be enacted that would change that. And so he's like, well, maybe by the time we get to the hotel, you would have convinced me to at least look into the next group of candidates coming up. (laughs) But that is the challenge, Ryan. Um, And I say most people that are coming to our trainings are already involved in politics in some way um, or in organizing and in leadership. So it's the person that has no interest that I really need to reach. And so I hope for most of the trainings that those people will then go out and reach those folks. And reach those folks. Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus Institute. That's Vanessa Gradine-Jones. The Institute is holding trainings this weekend in Denver, one of a select number of cities uh, that they've chosen. Is this mainly a boot camp for Democrats? I mean, every member, I think, of the Congressional Black Caucus, which you're attached to, is a Democrat. And I just want to point out that this state has a strong, unaffiliated streak. It's, you know, like a third of the voters. It's not. So our because training is, you know, is neutral, is nonpartisan. It's just basic, you know, campaign skills of how to run a campaign. Um, all of the members of the current caucus are Democrats. Uh, but we did have Mia Love, who was a Republican. Uh, there are other Republican members, but they're not members of uh, the CBC. Um, so, no, absolutely not. Um, I think people assume that. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a Congressional Black Caucus. But no, we're open to everybody. We just want highly trained operatives out there working and getting engaged. What do you think campaigns miss when it comes to the black community? That we do um, understand how politics affects us um, and how policies affect us. and that. You know, but you've just said that so many people don't have that grasp. They don't. But there's a large population that do, Mm -hmm. that will vote every time um, and that want to get involved and get engaged. A lot of people just don't know how. Um, And so I think that's what campaigns miss, that it was a large demographic. And so you just can't overlook this large group of people. So part of this is is training candidates. Part of it is also coming into communities and really trying to get to know the issues that are driving them. Absolutely. And the issues that might drive future campaigns. Absolutely. Is there anything you can reflect on in that regard about Denver? Um, Denver, uh, so part of our training is about education reform. Uh, You all are highly involved in uh, charter schools out here. And um, that's a major issue for you. And so... uh, you know, that that's a key focus that we have for our training. So the whole second day of training is about how to advocate for education reform. We don't take a position one way or the other. I was going to say, it sounded like you were about to. <laughs> we don't take uh-huh. a position one way or the other. Why, um, is, why that issue, though, do you think? 
Um, again, most of these trainings, uh, the four additional ones that we've done, are highly focused on what the Walton Family Foundation is interested in. Okay. And they are highly interested in education reform. And so that was a large component for us to add to the trainings. What role do you think you played in the 2018 midterm elections? And what role do you foresee having in 2020? So because we're nonpartisan and slightly nonpolitical, uh, I know that sounds crazy when I say that, and it sounds crazy when we're dealing with that in Congress as well. Um, we didn't have a large role. The mm-hmm. Congressional Black Caucus PAC had more of an impact because they were out raising money for candidates and deploying people to work on their campaigns. Sort of a third arm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And we were just trying to make sure that we had people trained for the candidates who wanted to have people to help them out on their campaigns. Do you think you'll get candidates out of this training? I hope so. Um, one of your House of Representatives, uh, Dominique, State, State Jackson. House? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Dominique Jackson, is a former boot camper. Um, so we're excited about that. And she came out to our initial touch point meeting to talk about her experience uh, when she was a boot camper. So there's all sorts of possibilities out there. And so we hope so. Uh, we have uh, Congressman uh, Stephen Horsford from Nevada is a former boot camper. Um Secretary, uh, former Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox, was a boot camper. So there are opportunities if you want to take them. We provide the training. So Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Vanessa Gradine-Jones is Executive Director of the Congressional Black Caucus Institute, which holds trainings this weekend in Denver. It is graduation season, and we've been sampling the advice of commencement speakers around the state. Governor Jared Polis delivered his words of wisdom May 4th at Colorado State University, Pueblo. He told graduates they're in for some surprises. None of your lives are going to turn out exactly as you expect. I'm sorry, to, I hope none of you were expecting that. Am I bearing bread news? You know, but that's what makes it exciting, right? Think of, uh, think of how boring life would be if you knew exactly where you would end up and exactly what would happen uh, and exactly how you would get there. You know, it's like knowing exactly what occurs in a movie. It may still be a little fun to watch, but it doesn't have that same sense of suspense and excitement that if you don't know what's going to occur. But you know what? If you continue to work hard to do right by the people around you, you will set yourself up for success in whatever challenges life throws your way. Polis went on to tell graduates they're members of a special generation, but one that faces challenges. You know, you really belong to a generation of dreamers and darers and doers. More than any other, this is really a generation that's committed to embracing diversity and seeing that as an asset rather than to be something to be scared of. It's a generation that places service above others in many ways. It's a generation that looks at the world and imagine what's possible. And you couldn't have come along at a better time because you know what? There's no shortage of problems that the previous generations have caused that you need to solve. So, uh, you know, it's some of them are the old problems. Some of them are the old problems. You know, we still have war, poverty, injustice. Uh, those persist despite, you know, generations of work to solve them. And in Colorado, we always like to follow the campsite rule. Leave this place better than you found it. Governor Jared Polis speaking May 4th at the CSU Pueblo graduation ceremony will highlight other speeches from around the state in the days ahead. <laughs> In Loud and Clear, we share your feedback and answer your follow-up questions. Today, we're going to do the latter. Listener Deb Bowers of Denver heard our segment Monday about Colorado's poor air quality. It's largely an ozone issue. 
Bowers wish we'd have talked about the role agriculture plays in air pollution, namely livestock. So let's do that now. We reached back out to our guest, Gabrielle Fista, from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. The reason why we hear less about agricultural emissions is that the biggest air quality concern that we have in the front range is ozone. And as for ozone, the agricultural sector has a smaller contribution. The emissions from agriculture, however, do contribute to particle pollution. Soil erosion, harvesting, or the burning of fields, where you emit the particles directly into the air. And those result in fairly large particles going into the air. Then there are really, really small particles that can actually be created in the atmosphere through chemical reactions. And farming does release some of those chemicals, like ammonia. But the front range isn't out of compliance in that arena. I do want to point out that emissions from the agricultural activities do get a lot of attention here in the Front Range also for two other reasons. Now, the one is in that they release methane, which is an important greenhouse gas, and the other is on nitrogen deposition. Nitrogen deposition, she said there. Pollutants that can come from agriculture that get carried by the air. And these are being transformed in the atmosphere and then transported into the mountains. In the mountains, they can get deposited on plants or in lakes and soils and damage our very fragile ecosystems. So while the agricultural sector is not brought up in the context of ozone pollution, it does get attention in other aspects. Gabrielle Fista from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. Keep your questions and feedback coming. You can find all the ways to get in touch at cpr.org connect. President Trump wants to reboot America's space defense. It could mean a new commitment to U.S. Space Command or creating a new military branch altogether. Either way, as CPR's Dan Boyce reports, El Paso County hopes that when the Pentagon looks to the stars, it'll stay grounded in Colorado. The message was clear in a recent hearing of the Senate Armed Services Committee. As Rhode Island Democratic Senator Jack Reed says, space is essential to U.S. security. It is a critical component of almost every aspect of everyday life, from communications, financial transactions, and navigation to the weather. And Reed says the country has long enjoyed a certain superiority way up there, though near-peer adversaries are catching up. Eventually, it could be a warfighting domain, And we must prepare accordingly. The question is how. And right now, there are two major options on the table. The first idea is this re-established Space Command, run by an Air Force general. Its temporary home has been set up at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, but lawmakers from Florida to Texas and California are also fighting to land the permanent home. Republican Congressman Doug Lamborn makes the case for staying in Colorado in a Facebook video he shot outside the Pentagon. Colorado and Colorado Springs in particular have so much to offer when it comes to space. Or how about Alabama Republican Congressman Mo Brooks pleading for the military to choose one of his bases during a hearing in the House Armed Services Committee? We have the highest concentration of engineers in the United States of America, physicists, mathematicians, scientists. In conclusion, I hope you will concur that Redstone Arsenal and the Space Command seem like an excellent fit. Meanwhile, President Trump wants to take this new emphasis on space to the next level He's been very clear about his end goal. Very importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to establish a space force 
as the sixth branch of the armed forces. That's a big statement. A completely new military branch. That Senate Armed Services Committee hearing we referenced at the beginning of this story was a chance for some of the military's top brass to argue in favor of establishing the Space Force. Here's Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford. Taking a next step to create a Space Force will allow us to develop and maintain a singular focus on developing the people, the capabilities, the doctrine, and the culture we'll need to maintain our competitive advantage in space. Dunford and others argue having space personnel come up through the different military branches with different training protocols results in an approach that is often slow and disaggregated. The hope is a space force would streamline that. Not everyone agrees. Mount Holyoke College visiting lecturer Brian Nakayama focuses on the relationship between technology and warfare, He says creating a new military branch would actually produce more bureaucracy and infighting. Rather, Nakayama says the space command strikes the right balance. Because it isn't, you know, an entirely new department, it doesn't cause as many visible turf battles. And he says going the route of a full-on space force could lead to an escalation in military space projects by competitors like China and Russia. The creation of a service department and, you know, the massive investments that would take would signal to other countries they need to increase their involvement in space. Whatever option the military chooses long term, it's probably important to clarify something. When officials talk about preparing for space as a warfighting domain, they're not talking about astronauts flying around shooting laser guns. Not yet, anyway. The space soldiers of today are more along the lines of desk-bound computer wizards, largely using American satellites to assist in military operations on the ground and thwarting the increasing attempts from adversaries to jam those satellites. Dan Boyce, CPR News. Colorado, by the way, is home to four of the six locations the Air Force is considering as the permanent headquarters for U.S. Space Command. So Buckley, Peterson, Schriever Air Force Bases and Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station. Okay, trick question. What do Colorado's great sand dunes have a lot of? I don't mean sand in this case. Turns out they have a lot of darkness. It's why the National Park near Alamosa has just been deemed an international dark sky park. I reached longtime ranger Fred Bunch. Fred, it's interesting. You're a resources manager. I guess light and darkness, that's a resource, would you say? Oh, very much. Half the park is after dark, as we say, and dark night skies allow for... uh animals and uh, other living things that are active at night, and particularly at the dunes when it gets so hot during the day, many, many of the creatures are nocturnal. And then the cultural part of it is the stories. Every culture across the world have tales that come from the heavens. Help me understand what it looks like at the sand dunes at night when I look up at the sky. You stand in silent amazement when you look up at the night skies over great sand dunes because you can see stars, the order of magnitude you couldn't even think about in a city or an area where there's light pollution. And so you look at into the depths of the heavens. It's almost indescribable, the awe that you get when you look in the night sky. Now, help me understand, is the great sand dunes now a international dark sky park simply because it's never really had light pollution? Or have you taken steps to, like, reduce the light pollution at the park? We have taken steps to reduce the external lighting, put it on motion sensors, lower the amperage, 
And so that's one piece of it. The other parts of it are that you have to measure the night sky through sky quality meters to actually show how dark it is. And the third part of that is we have to reach out to the public and inform them about the benefits of dark night skies. Ah, I see. So part of this is an education campaign that will continue as people visit the park. This is fascinating. You have to measure the darkness. That's right. There's a, an instrument that we use when there's no moon or, uh, and it's clear skies. We can go out and, and do readings. And some of our readings are almost to the capacity of what the instruments can read. Now, I understand you have with you a volunteer who helped make this happen, Fred. Who are you going to pass the phone over to? Well, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Bob Bully, an engineer, and he's volunteered for us for several years, and we couldn't have done this without him. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Why was this important to you? It, um, the world's population, we have lost our ability to see the heavens at night. NASA estimates that only 17% of Americans can see our home galaxy, the Milky Way, from their home locations. But parks like Great Sand Dunes offer a refuge where people can reconnect with the night sky. And this is important. The light bulb, the incandescent light bulb that Edison invented, the first commercial light bulb, was invented in 1879. That is 140 years ago. All life on Earth, plant life, animal life, human life, insect life, evolved hundreds of thousands of years to millions of years before the light bulb changed our world. And we're struggling to adapt. Wildlife is struggling to adapt, and humans are struggling to adapt. Wow, I've never quite heard it put that way. Fred, I understand you're going to have all kinds of star parties at the park, uh, but you have a question that you ask visitors. Will you ask us that question? Are there more grains of sand at the Great Sand Dunes or more stars in the sky? Okay, I'm going to guess, answer. let's see, I'm, I'm going to guess the, the grains of sand. No, I think, Ryan, we're, there's actually more stars in the sky. There you go. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Fred Bunch is Chief of Resources Management at the Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve. It's just been deemed an international dark sky park. The others in Colorado, by the way, are Black Canyon at the Gunnison and Dinosaur National Monument. There are also dark sky communities here. Norwood, West Cliff, and Silver Cliff, Colorado. Cause you're a sky, cause you're a sky full of stars. I'm gonna give you my heart Cause you're a sky, cause you're a sky full of stars Finally today, we are preparing for a road trip. Colorado Matters is headed to Grand Junction next month. We'll broadcast from our studio on Main Street. And on Friday night, June 21st, we'll tape an episode of the show a few blocks away at the Avalon Theater. My guest will be best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller. He has a new wilderness thriller called The River. Tickets are on sale now at CPR.org. And the live event will also feature a performance from our winner of the Solo on the Slope music contest. We got around 50 submissions, and we'll announce the winner tomorrow. For now, 
why don't we hear another of our favorite entries? Derek James Stevens of Palisade told us music and Western Colorado are in his blood. His father's family has lived in the region for over a century, and his great-grandmother Paula traveled the country performing folk music with her children. Here's Stevens with his original song, Something Set You Free. If something sets you free, it surely is a sound Like the beating in your chest or the thunder in the cloud Sure as that thud when the apple hit the ground And sweet as the taste when you put it in your mouth Just as fast as I can Feel the sun on my face And the earth in my hand Derek James Stevens of Palisade with Something Set You Free. It's a favorite from our Solo on the Slope music contest. Tune in tomorrow. We'll announce the winner. And again, you can get tickets to our event at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction, which tapes June 21st at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'll let the night like a dog on a chain.